Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Kate DeSherry and Jane Ryan Stradle. Hello, Kate. Hello. All right. The way we're going to do this tonight, I'm going to ask her a few questions. It'll hopefully incite um, answers <laughs> and or a conversation, and then we'll break uh, for uh, short readings throughout. So you can hear a little bit about the novel, which I highly recommend you buy. First of all, Kate, <laughs> you were actually a political science major as an undergrad, and you discovered a love for writing while teaching English in China. <laughs> Tell us how that happened. Okay, right off the bat. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was a political science major as an undergrad, that's true, um, which I think upon reflection is probably because I liked the writing part of it um, and the reading part. Um, and so um, that's partly why I ended up in China because I had the moment that a lot of young 20-somethings have, which is I wanted an adventure and not to have a regular job, and I wasn't finding one anyway. Um, and I got a job teaching English in China, which was perfect, fit all those needs. And I was interested in China, you know, partly because I had studied comparative politics a little bit and sort of was interested in communism, and it was probably the strangest, most different place I could go where I could actually have gainful employment mm. and live. Um, and that... It, it fulfilled its promise of being strange, for sure. <laughs> Where in China? Um, I was in Dalian, China. Where's that? Dalian, China is um, it's east of Beijing, and um, how far east of Beijing? Like yeah. an hour plane ride, maybe two hundred. Wow. Miles. Okay. Okay. It's, so it's on the peninsula by Port Arthur. Okay, um, but it was isolated. Somewhat. So okay, it's sort of isolated, and no one's ever heard of it. But there were six million people there. Oh, okay. <laughs> because <laughs> so yeah, so it's right. not a small. Yes, it was sort of isolated, and yes, no one's ever heard of it. And there was not a very large um, expatriate community from anywhere, really. Mm. Um, but it wow. did have six million people. So I was not in the middle of nowhere by right. any stretch of the imagination. You're in the middle of. I was in the middle of China. Yeah. Um, I was on the east coast of China. Mm-hmm. Um, and and. Um, so, so I can tell you a little bit about that, and that's sort of where I began writing, and where during that time, um, I learned I liked to write, and I'm gonna now tell you a story about that. <laughs> Planted question, if you couldn't. Tell. Okay, so, um, so um, during the time that I lived in China, um, I a lot of different strange and interesting things were happening to me, and I was writing about them. Um, and I didn't. I had never really been a writer. I was a political science undergraduate, and I, you know, took the LSAT test like everyone else in the world, and didn't go to law school um, because I didn't want to. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, and and so I was writing about. Quick, uh, quickly, did you take any writing classes in college? No. Oh. Um, I didn't take any really. I took a little bit of literature um, for some electives, but mm-hmm. I didn't take any writing classes. Uh, f- no. Okay. I didn't. Um, until graduate school, and then I did. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so this, and so, 
what you're about to say was like your first real step into creative writing yes, at all. Yes, exactly. Wow. This is the origins story. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah. this is how it began. Yeah. It, uh, so I was living in China, and what happened was, and this is really sort of the moment, I think, when it happened. Um, I'm going to tell you this little story. It goes on. So if you want some wine, now's your moment. Um, but um, so, so I... Um, I lived in tenement housing when I was in China. I worked at this national university, so it was a, a national um, school. And the tenement housing was probably, if you picture Chinese tenement housing, that's what it was. Whatever you're imagining, I can pretty much guarantee you that's what it was. It was this big, huge block um, building, kind of nondescript, filthy, just filthy. Um, because it just was not kept up very well. And so I remember, like, the woman, for instance, who moved out before me, she moved out that day, and they just never went back in or got any of her stuff out or cleaned it up or anything. And um, on the first night, I remember my shower was just completely overflowing, and I had to use a wire hanger to, like, scoop this huge clog out of the drain. It was just awful. Um, but actually, I loved it because I was on this adventure. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Right. I, t- I loved it. I loved being there. It was, um, And I was on my own, and it was... How was the food? Um, you know, it was, if you knew where to go, it was great. No. (laughs) (laughs) If you didn't, it was questionable. Um, yeah, it was hard to find food that I recognized, but I was, I was sort of open to that. Um, Mm -hmm. and so what happened was, what happened was the door of this apartment where I live was the steel door, flat, heavy, huge, thick steel door, no knob, no knob on the inside, no knob on the outside. Um, so you just use this big, huge four-sided key to turn the latch and get in or turn the other way and lock the bolt. Does that make sense? There's no knob, right? So on the inside, there's like some little hook that you could use to get out. And so I would often leave without actually locking the deadbolt because you couldn't get in without the key anyway, Hmm. Um, which is why it was very easy for me to leave and teach all day and go to the gym and come home and not have my key and not realize that. So it was like 10 o'clock at night, and I hadn't been there very long, and I was locked out, and I didn't have a cell phone, um, and I didn't speak any Mandarin. Um, and so um, I went down to my neighbor's house, this guy George, who was the only person I knew at the time. He was Bulgarian, um, and he was teaching English at this university, too. And he... Um, like he was he was the only person I knew. He was kind of this... He was really warm to me, and he was really friendly, and so I was... I needed to ask him for his help, but he was kind of odd. Um, like, I remember, the main thing I remember about George is that he was always, um, he always watched porn like it was like a mainstream movie. <laughs> and so you'd go to work on Monday and he'd be like, how was your weekend? Oh, how was your weekend? What did you guys do? He was married. Sarah was his wife. She was Chinese. And he was like, we watched, like Sarah and I rented a movie and we just stayed in. It was Goodwill Humping. Have you seen that one? And you're just like, and they'd be like, it was sort of more of like comedy and I was expecting more drama, but like <clears throat> decent penises and it was fine. You're just like, what are you talking about? This is not how people, but all the time. Crazy. Cool. Um, so we were friends, but not, we, we weren't, we weren't super close. <laughs> um, but I didn't have anyone else to go to. So I went to George's apartment and knocked on the door and he called someone at the university. By now it's like 1030 and um, they sent a maintenance guy to come let, let me back in. Um, and I, um, I, at this point, am apologizing profusely, and I, this is not like me, and I'm totally responsible. I'm so sorry. It's so late. This guy comes, and we go up to my apartment to get in, and he spends 20 minutes trying to get in, and he can't, he can't get in. He cannot unlock the door. The maintenance man, they're George and he are talking, mm-hmm. and the maintenance guy goes, leaves. And George's like, you know, he can't get it open, but he has one more tool on his bike that he thinks will, will work. He'll be right back. And he comes back a few minutes later, um, 
and he has this um, huge fucking sledgehammer <laughs> is what he has um, and so he bashed in the wall all around oh. my life um, and he was you know it was late and he was pissed off and he, I, he just bashed this huge hole um, and then we could pop the door latch and yeah. get in okay so then George is telling me you have to lock the door now because now it's just open now it's just you cannot leave without your key um, and so of course I will I'm so sorry I'm like this is not like me I'm totally together of course I will of course I'll lock my door um, and the next day I come home from class and George is sitting on the stairs waiting for me and you know, I'm like, what happened? And he's like, the repairman, the repairman came back to patch this huge hole in your wall, and you know, he accidentally bumped the little latch, and and the door opened, and you know, he got really worried because you locked it for sure. Um, so he looked in, and it was just a mess, just just everything everywhere. It had obviously been pillaged and plundered, just books everywhere, shit everywhere, in your room, like all the drawers are pulled out, and the this armoire is like open and empty and hangers askew and so he backed out went down to George's apartment and they called the police to report the break-in and all these policemen come and they go up to the apartment to try to figure out what could be gone who could have gotten in that's a long story I told you um and um and George is helping them try to figure out and he's going to later translate to me what's going on so he's with them and he goes in the kitchen and sees this little pair of silver earrings that my dad my dad had given me for my birthday that year um and then he goes into my bedroom and he sees this like wad of like dirty money on the um, on the desk. And then on my bed, when he sees the laptop, is when he's like, "She she was not robbed. This is just a fucking shithole. It's just oh. it's just really messy. Oh. <laughs> this is just how she lives." Wow. Um, and so then he had to try to convince the cops that I hadn't been robbed. Oh boy. Um, and they thought he had probably robbed me and was trying to like throw them oh, off the no. scent or something like that. Um, and and the maintenance guy never believed it because he was just like, it's not possible that someone actually lives like this. Um, and so so George was explaining it to me, and he was like, I mean, he was upset, but mostly he was just like, I could could not reconcile this person who he knew and worked with, mm. who was like put together and you know, like yeah. I'm so responsible. Well, how much um, of it was the woman who lived there before you? No, it was all me. Oh. This 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 was like months in. Okay. I don't know. Oh, okay. no. There's no excuse. I can't blame right. her. Okay. Um, yeah, and he just couldn't. He just like could not make sense of that. And so anyway, so when this happened, what this has to do with writing is that um, I wrote I wrote this I wrote this story down. That was like the first thing I wanted to do. Huh. And and think about like you know this complicated situation where this is the only person I know, and here's this person I am for real, and here's this polished version that I present, and um, and that's still sort of what I like to write about. And I remember now. Mm-hmm. Like even looking back, I was sort of like, that's when I was like, that's the first thing I want to do when this happened is write about it, and it starts to turn into narrative in my mind. That's how I'm processing mm. my life, um, and that's I think when I be, like really became a writer sort wow. of like because of that awful experience. Wow! Yeah, awesome. so that's the beginning. That's the origin story. Oh, fantastic! And what happened to that story? Um, I'm telling ever... it to you now. Okay. Yeah. Great. great. <laughs> Nothing really. Yes. Um, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was just curious if there was some kind of... Um, Probably weren't. I don't know. I mean, I... I uh, for my part, I... The first time I ever sent out a, a short story to be published, it was published. And then it was four years before another one was published. <laughs> yeah. Um, probably hundreds of rejections like one of them I sent out like 60 times you know that kind of thing it was great it was exactly what I needed 
Yeah. 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 So it's kind of how it goes. That was was like 11 years ago or something that I first started thinking like, this is actually something I want to do. Yeah. So it's a long Mm -hmm. time. So once back in the U. So once you were back in the U.S., mm-hmm. you worked for a time at an art school. Yes. Or was it an art school or the arts department of a large school? It was a school. It was a um, a separate school, but yeah, it was a school of art inside a university. Got it. University of Iowa. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Was there was there a singular event or person who first inspired? the story that became this novel? That's a good question. Um, you know, because sort of like I described, I think for a lot of writers, you, I mean, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't speak for other writers. I'll speak for myself. Um, I do sort of process my life in narrative. I mean, when things happen, you're sort of like writing a little scene around it or, I mean, thinking of how that would work in a larger story or what that weird little moment says about those characters or something like that, mm-hmm. the, um, which is how you put together fiction or how I put together fiction. Um, and so I think that was happening along the way sometimes, but the school where I worked did flood. And maybe that's when I was sort of like, this is, you know, there are things here. Enough of these anecdotes have lined up that there is a larger arc. Um, and and so I, I think that maybe was it. Um, and And then... I'll just tell you, I knew someone who I knew someone who got crazy, crazy internet love, fell in crazy internet love with a with a with a male model. Not hmm. exactly the way it unfolds in the book, but she she did, and it was this like really weird thing that she was talking about all the time and super excited about, and it was also really sad, and it was like that perfect literary combination of just like bizarre and funny, but also heartbreaking, and I think. Um, yeah, I have to give her credit because it's partly because of that obsession as well that I wanted to write about it. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, you captured it really convincingly. <laughs> it's fictionalized. And one more question yeah. before we hear from you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One of the things I love about your book as a fellow Midwestern writer is that you describe the people of the Midwest with real depth and care. I've, I think they're just as strange as the people on the coast. Yeah. And yeah, you bear that out in your book. <laughs> What's more, uh, they also have to deal with extreme weather, Mm -hmm. like the flood. So, in terms of a character or a situation, what was the most fun part to write? That's a great question, too. Um, The most fun to write. You know, I think the most fun to write was probably the the female character who... um, who is in love with she becomes she falls in love with the cover model of a romance book um harsh falls hard um because i think um because maybe because it is so just such a strange thing but such a human thing you know and and it's it's where her loneliness went really um it's kind of what it was and so um I don't know. I think it was just fun to write because it was um, it was it was such a particular and strange thing to get to write. And I mean, for me, I mean, for me, I only want to write things that are fun to write. I like. I mean, I want to do it because it's joyful and it's like being at play. Um, and so, I mean, so I don't know if I can even pick her as a favorite. It's all. It was all fun. It was all fun to write. That's well, why I like to write comedy. Yeah. That's really cool to hear. And let's hear a little bit. Okay. Yeah. All right. I have some. So I'm just going to read from the beginning. Um, just a short, a little short, sort of shorter section, probably. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yes, okay. please. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Chapter one. <laughs> I am sitting behind my desk watching the downpour when I catch the scent of bacon. Dunbar is in the building again, despite the restraining order. I close my eyes as if that might enhance my sense of smell and wonder if Ramona can detect the bacon back in her office. 
No doubt, she's sitting in her Herman Miller Aeron chair, tucked behind her computer screen, sneakered feet barely reaching the floor, her compact runner's body folded in half at the waist, not in an attempt to hide or be secretive, but trying to physically burrow into a beat of the heart or under the sheets or whatever other period-specific euphemistically risque bodice ripper she has open in her lap. I know what's going on back there. Fantasizing, role-playing, vicarious pleasure-seeking, page after page of cream-whipped breasts pressing up against bulging pectorals and arrowhead pelts of silky chest hair, heaving women impaling themselves on the swollen brawn of lust-crazed men shattering in any number of adventurous positions and locales. Ramona used to be competent. She used to be organized, precise, militantly efficient, the tireless director of the School of Visual Arts, my boss, and the sort of woman who wouldn't bother to scoff at paperback love. Now, under the screen name Flexible Tigress, she's the most frequent commenter at romancingtheblog.com. <laughs> Early this past fall, before she was so far afield, Ramona and I faced difficulty trying to legally bar a tenured professor from his place of employ, even a pathological agitator like Bert Dunbar. The man considers himself an edgy New York City artist provocateur, and he lives in constant struggle against the geographical and circumstantial facts that he is something else, namely a Midwestern drawing teacher. In his screwball mind, he, he affirms his artistic relevance with his action art, elaborate schemes designed to upend the administration. When it's ignored, he cries creative censorship. And then when that backward reasoning doesn't get anyone's attention, he insists it's meta-censorship, censorship of the censorship. <laughs> What we finally busted him for was peeping on a nude model in an evening drawing class. Dunbar claimed he was on the ladder to change a light bulb, but Brandon Nichols, a generally disgruntled undergraduate, said he saw Dunbar leering over the classroom divider, practically slobbering on that naked chick. It wasn't a strong enough case to fire him. He did, in fact, have a light bulb in his possession. But when a young person suggests sexual misconduct, municipal civil judges are quick with powers of injunction. And we take what we can get. I stalk out of my office, licking my lips on the hunt. Catching Dunbar in violation of the restraining order is one of my professional charges as administrative coordinator of the School of Visual Arts. He is allowed to enter the facility only when he is teaching and under no circumstances may he communicate with faculty, staff, or students not registered for one of his courses. Since issuance of the restraining order, he has been sneaking into the building, firing up a hot plate in a corner, closet, or unused office, and frying bacon. (laughs) The scent overtakes the building, letting us all know he does not intend to go quietly, or rather (laughs) non-odorously. In person, Dunbar is a befuddled, incoherent, untucked goon of a man. That he can do anything remotely elusive, let alone repeatedly, is astounding to me. And yet, we haven't caught him in the act. I haven't caught him in the act. Standing now in the School of Visual Arts atrium, a three-story tall open cylinder with a Jackson Pollock adorning its putty-color facade, stairs corkscrewing up along the wall, I close my eyes and take a measured breath, trying to gauge from which direction the bacon scent is coming. Rain pounds the building's corrugated steel roof, and it's like the noise is interfering with my sense of smell. If only it was silent, I'd be able to sniff out exactly where Dunbar is hiding. I inhale again and head for the stairs. All right, so Kate, um, let's see. 
When you're self-interviewed today on the nervous breakdown, mm -hmm. you <laughs> talked about something, you know, and you brought this up briefly before. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked about something I don't see a lot of fiction writers discuss, and that's the joy of writing mm -hmm. and writing to entertain. Yeah. I, the vast majority of fiction writers I know view it as, um, I don't know, like some kind of medievalism, you know, or like it's, it's really, it seems like a very difficult thing and they chronicle it publicly. And I don't think as a, uh, as a uh, demonstrative, positive maneuver, I think is evidence of their, of their suffering. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, like the, right, like the way, we, the way someone wears a Cubs hat. Um, <laughs> And so you... <laughs> Chicagoans kid. Right. <laughs> and so tell us about what writers have entertained you and what the process of joyous writing is like for you. Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, it is about joy for me, um, for sure. I'll just reiterate that. Um, because it's fun. I mean, that's it. It's simple as that. It's really fun. And also, I mean, I'm sure this is probably going to be controversial. I'm going to say it anyway, <laughs> even though I haven't had that glass of wine yet. But, um, you know, I think... For me, at least, my experience and a lot of readers I know, reading fiction is, um, I mean, it's, this is, this is where I'm going to probably say something to offend someone, it's leisure activity, by which I mean, even if it's challenging, even if it's engaging, even if it's um, engrossing, even if it's an intellectual exercise, for the most part, not everyone, not everyone, but for the most part, um, we're doing it because we want to, as, as like, recreation um, in one way or another. And that doesn't mean, I don't mean recreation, like, you know, playing baseball or something. I mean, we're choosing to do it. Um, and there are exceptions, and I'm sure there are people who don't view it that way, because it is art, right? And it, it is powerful. There are a lot of other aspects to it. But for me, um, there is at least some aspect of entertainment um, to it and, rec and recreation, joy. Um, and so, so it's important to me that it be a fun experience to create um, and also for people who maybe read it. I want them to, I want it to be fun for them. Um, yeah, and that's something, something I talked about in the Nervous Breakdown piece, which is something, uh, yeah, Gary Steingar talks about, and a lot of other writers who write comedy um, sort of have to defend it, I think, as still something rigorous and still something that you're taking seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure my editors can tell you I obsessed over it just as much as I would have if it wasn't funny um, or wasn't meant to be a comedy. Um, but so there are a lot of writers who I think are great and really funny. Um, but I think specifically when I was writing this, I read a lot of academic comedies and academic satire. I read um, Lucky Jim, which if you haven't read, it's hysterical. Um, I read Straight Man. I read um, Confederacy of Dunces. I'm sure I'm forgetting a lot. Um, but I read those sort of like screwball academic comedies. Um, and I love them. I think they're great. And the reason I love them and the reason I think it's really fun to write this, and this specific book was fun to write, is because the, um, the academy and university is such a strange environment and it's so particular because a lot of reasons, but largely because it has tenure. And so you, you, like, you essentially have this really close working department or environment or whatever it is, um, and there are not really very many serious consequences. So people do crazy things that they don't necessarily do in other places of employment or in other um, cl close-knit situations. And so that's why I like those in particular, because you can get away with, I think, a lot of over-the-top things, because, listen, academics do crazy shit. <laughs> and they get away with it. You know, they, yeah. they can. They can do that. And partly that's, um, especially at research in institutions, I think that's kind of the environment that people are exploring and they're researching and they have a lot of liberty and anyway so that's kind of where that could, does that answer your question absolutely all right, all right. yeah mm -hmm. let's see 
So where, where did you begin writing this novel, and how did it evolve? I mean, I saw in your acknowledgments you thanked Mark Haskell Smith and you made a reference to Nebraska. Yes, indeed. And so, yeah, tell me about the journey okay. of, of this <laughs> manuscript. Okay, um, so I wrote most of this manuscript when I was at UC Riverside's low residency program. Um, mm-hmm. But that was my third MFA program. Okay, and so we're talking to the Palm Desert. Pro- wow, okay, so we're talking to... The Palm Desert, yes. Yeah, the, the Palm, Palm Desert, Desert program. program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was my third. That was my third MFA program. The other two, I. All right. <laughs> More humiliation stories. Yeah, you can ask her after the after the reading. No, I'll tell you now. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Why well, I can't have wine before I'll get to four hundred. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So I started at a different low residency program in Nebraska, which is where I met Mark Haskell Smith, who um, guided me through writing this book, as well as another one that has since been discarded. Hmm. Um, I was there for a year, and, you know, I just found that I wasn't going to be able to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish in that program. Um, And so I decided to transfer, and I, for a number of reasons, personal and otherwise, I decided to try a traditional residency MFA program. So I moved to Florida and was a TA and (laughs) did did the whole, like, traditional workshop um, for one semester that lasted, where I found I was even farther from being able to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. Mm. Um, Was it because the responsibilities of being a TA took time away from writing, or...? No, okay. No, uh, no, it was not. I did not find that to be the case. No. I loved I loved being a TA. I loved teaching. It was great. It was really fun. The, and the undergrads were actually wonderful, um, curious, and great. No, um, no, it was, it was, um, the program I sort of set up is so that you really can't write a novel. Oh. You really can't work on a novel. Um, that was one of the main things. Um, you know, it was also a little bit less demanding in terms of what my required output. Um, so, I and I, so I, like every six months, turn in twenty pages, you um, know, that kind of thing. More or less. Okay. Yeah, wow. More okay. or less. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that's mm-hmm. the pedagogy, and it, it didn't. It did not work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kept in touch with Mark. Um, since we were working together in Nebraska and he was at Riverside and had been telling me for a long time that that was where I needed to be and I had ignored that advice <laughs> to my detriment um, until I didn't and then and then I went there and it was it was exceptional I cannot say enough good things about it this book would not exist without that program and the mm. people there oh, wonderful. That's so that's great. how it went yeah fantastic yeah let's hear a little bit more from the novel okay yeah all right I'm just gonna pick up where I left off so that we can just keep going and I don't have to explain anything else. Okay? <laughs> All right, so we were, we were heading for the stairs. Okay. When I reached the second story, I turned left down a wide, glassed-in hallway that is cantilevered out over the river, sticking off the side of the silo-shaped building like a tree branch. Maybe Dunbar is in the art library. As I do, every time I walk this corridor, I look out to the Pollock, acknowledge it, revere it, hanging high above the atrium, dead even with the second-story mezzanine. It's one of his lesser-known works, a smaller abstract, supposedly a portrait, though there's disagreement regarding commission and subject. Completed in 1947, it precedes his famous drip stage, all those large-scale paint-flung masterpieces, though this one is by no means diminutive. 55 inches high, 67 inches across, nearly four and a half feet tall by five and a half feet wide. Facts I've recounted to inattentive prospective students on countless building tours. I cannot look at it without thinking of Pollock's own description. A stampede, he called it, everything barreling across that goddamn surface. The library doors come into view, up ahead on the right. 
I spent an afternoon last week mapping and categorizing the building's electrical outlets, rating them one through five, five best, one worst, based on their potential for clandestine bacon frying. <laughs> I know there are two somewhat hidden but still accessible plugs amid the library stacks that I rated fours. One behind the graduate carols I gave a three. The pounding rain is amplified by the hallway's thick aquarium glass walls, and it sounds as if the drops are falling in unison like an enormous electric drill turning against an immovable screw. It distracts me for half a second, but when I walk farther down the hall toward the library, the smell of bacon intensifies, fueling my pursuit. I reach for the library doors, sensing Dunbar's presence, certain I'm closing in on him when Suzanne Betts, professor of sculpture and faculty advisor of my MFA graduation committee 10 years ago, turns the corner at the end of the hall and marches toward me. Purple suede clogs, pigeon-toed and clomping, red sundress aflutter, canvas messenger bag yanked across her body, flopped open, practically animate, spewing papers, folders, books, some kind of miniature orange traffic cone, and what looks like a two-by-four. Suzanne and I became close when I was a grad student and are like family now. She often takes shameless advantage of our personal friendship for professional profit, and I can see by her expression of pre-apology and the scraggly-looking boy ambling behind her that this morning will be no exception. The boy is wearing tight, tapered jeans that look like they belong on his 13-year-old sister, and a too-small t-shirt adorned with the artificially faded graphic of some band or another, laceless red Converse All-Stars, an asymmetrically hacked mullet, and some kind of scummy kerchief around his neck. We were just coming to find you, Suzanne says. She points to the arty ragamuffin. Nina Lanning, this is Matthias Damon, my absolute most promising undergraduate student. Suzanne says this about nearly every student at one point or another. Not because she has that teacherly yearning to be adored, but because she is perilously optimistic and needs, simply needs to believe in the talent of young artists. Nice to meet you, Matthias. There was a time when I knew most of the undergrads by name. These days, I'm lucky if I recognize a face. What's up? He looks at me like I don't get it, whatever it might be. I have never been a hateful person, so I'm surprised by an impulse to take him by the kerchief and bark, cut your hair, you little mutt. I clasp my hands behind my back. There's been a robbery in the third floor gallery, Suzanne says. Okay, well, can we deal with it a little later? I'm right in the middle of something. Suzanne looks at me like I've just said Damien Hurst is a nincompoop. Her sense of smell is perfectly intact. She knows exactly what something I'm right in the middle of and evidently does not agree that it supersedes a burgled student. Come on, she says. Why don't you just call campus police? They'll probably be happy to have something to do. Tell them a work of fine art has been stolen, a real caper. I don't mean to sound sarcastic. That's just how it comes out. Nina. Suzanne glances at Matthias, and I note that he is the one getting her look of apology now. All right, I say, fine. Let's go see what happened. All right, thank you. <laughs> Any questions for Kate? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. Dara and Carl, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, uh, that's it. Yes, yes, please. Do you do any fine art? No, no, I'm a horrible, atrocious visual artist. Just awful. I'm, I don't do any um, visual arts. It's not in my skill set. Um, but I like it. But I'm not, I'm not um, even a particularly well-informed student of visual arts. I mean, I, I love visual arts. Um, I do, but... Um, and this book is set there, so I, I mean, I did a little, I've learned what I could for it, but um, 
but mostly I like artists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Yes. Um, so what's your uh, sort of day writing process like? Um, so <laughs> um, in ideal circumstances, I write in the morning for a few hours. Um, However, I have a one-year-old and a not-yet-three-year-old, so I don't really live in that <laughs> universe at the moment. Um, but usually, still, it's, I try to do a few days a week where it's just the morning. I tend to sort of lose brain power um, by the evening in a, in a regular course of the day. Um, and, and I tend to just write from the beginning, at least so far, from the beginning to the end and just sort of um, keep going through. We'll see if it, that continues to be the case for the next book, but, um, but that's how I wrote this one, just one foot in front of the other. Very much that way. A quick question for me. Have you started the next book yet? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want me to elaborate? <laughs> I mean, uh, there's, like, not, yes. there's not too what can, terrible. What can you say about it? Not, I mean, not much yet, but, um, but I started it actually at the very end of my graduate program. Um, I had one last packet to turn in to Mark, and he sort of said, write whatever you want, and I started something, and that was several years ago now, and that's still the project I'm working on. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, hopefully comedy still. That's... That's what I. That's what I want to do. <laughs> uh, anyone else? Is the next work? I mean, this seems, in a way, semi-autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Like you're taking a lot of these characters and indulging them. Is the next work similar? No, I mean, I don't. Um, I'm sure that it will be. I'm sure that you would get an, a different answer from everyone. And for me, the fact is, I. Um, I write about the things that I think about in my life. Like I was saying earlier, I mean, the things that happen to me, the relationships, the things that perplex me, um, the things that I find strange within relationships. Um, The next one is more about a family. Um, And one of the things I think is interesting about families is especially... So what I like to write about, too, is intimacy and sort of like the way that we do have this really weird, you know, flawed, twisted person inside us and that's not who we present and that I think has an impact on our relationships, how intimate we are and how um, the kinds of obstacles we run into in our relationships and I think it's especially true of families because you have this intense, intense intimacy um, with your your immediate family especially Um, but also some really distinct boundaries like I was, I'm just going to go right for this but I was telling someone earlier I'm really close with my brothers Um, but they don't like watch, letting, watching me nurse my kids. It's like that's where they draw the line. Like there are all these other really intimate experiences we've had together, even though anyone in the world sees it, and I do it wherever. But my brothers are like, oh no 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 no, that's where I draw the line. That's too much information, you know. Um, and I think there's something about immediate families that have a really specific dance around those kinds of dynamics. Um, so I'm sure there will be things. It's sort of the things I think about and the things I watch as I watch strangers and do other weird things that people who write do. Um, so I'm sure there'll be things. But I don't know if it'll be as specifically sort of plot by point that involves real life experiences. Any other questions? Excellent. Like you're curious, I guess. Uh, what, like, what what piece did you like decide that was gonna set based on the style of your your voice writing? What? Like, like poem or a little short story that like you wrote, then you said, yeah, that's that's. That's how I sound. Um, um, did I, if I wrote a piece that sort of set the tone of the story? Well, no, no, no. It's kind of you... like, you know, you develop a voice, right? Yeah. And you, sure. you write along with that voice. What, what piece are you able to discover your voice in? Um, so for this book, really, the f- like the first two sentences. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wrote the first two sentences. They've never changed. Um, 
and and I think that sort of set me down the track that the rest of the book eventually went. It, it's open with this bacon, and <laughs> I had that idea of doing this thing with the bacon, and that is a pretty distinct comedic tone. Um, and and those are the two sentences, yeah, that never changed. I'm sure there's other parts that never changed, but we, you know, I just think um, really, I mean, that's I don't, I don't mean to be. Um, to not have a more elaborate or interesting answer, but the first couple sentences just came out like that, um, and I think that set me on my way. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about the novel that you put away, though, Yeah. this one. Mm-hmm. Would you ever go back to that one, or do you feel like that was just sort of an exercise? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's deeply flawed. Um, <laughs> but... Um, really funny. <laughs> Mark's <laughs> Mark's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> But funny. Um, <laughs> Um, I mean, I think it's probably the kind of thing that I, if I did go back to, I would go back to the idea um, or the character or something, but not probably the actual material. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't looked at it in a long time. Um, but I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe. It's also sort of, I mean, it was sort of based on some of the things that happened to me when I was abroad. So sometimes I think that might be better for not nonfiction, just because, if I ever wrote any nonfiction, just because um, they really did happen. So I don't know, you know, why not? mine those actual experiences a little bit, but I'm not sure. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> oh, we had a... Chris, did you have a question? <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe. If you want me to, I will. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, this is, as you pointed out, it's sort of the beginning of a story as well. Um, it sort of ends at the beginning of something. Something's coming. It'd be fun to find out. We'll see. Maybe. Also, maybe. <laughs> I have a question. Um, did I hear you say that you were in three different writing projects? <laughs> I was. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I may have missed that. Really, but how did that happen? Yeah. Um, I mean, the short answer is I... So I think... The reason I transferred and didn't just stick it out where I was was, I mean, I, I one, I felt like in both of the first two programs, um, I felt like I was not going to be able to, com- I knew I wanted to write a novel, I had a specific goal, I wanted to write a comic novel, um, I had a bunch of ideas sort of floating around, I needed help, and I needed the craft technique badly. Um, and so I, and I wanted, I was, I was very, I really valued the time that I was going to be spending because I knew I had these couple of years and I had something really specific I wanted to get done in that time. And so I think I, as I went, like for example in the first program, I just felt, you know, I was always sort of evaluating, am I going to be able to accomplish what I want to accomplish? And this is something that, um, you know, I, I felt like I needed to I needed to um, do during graduate school, during in this environment with this instruction. I needed the instruction, I needed the deadlines, I needed the structure in the community. And I just, for the first two programs, I just knew it was I wasn't going to be able to and even though I ended up being in school for a year and a half longer than I needed to and that comes with some debt um, it was worth it for me because I, I wanted the right program and I was absolutely dedicated to getting the experience that I was after um, and I did I mean I had to b- jump around but mm-hmm. but I, I got it in the end right can you elaborate a bit on why UCR Palm Desert was the right program yeah certainly I'd be delighted to um, <laughs> It's, you know, so first of all, it was rigorous for me. Um, I wrote a lot. I wrote 30 or 40 pages a month. Um, 
and I had instructors who were never going to let me off the hook. Um, they knew what I was after, and if I wasn't doing that, they were going to tell me that without flinching, but with um, with just this sort of absolute sense of generosity, um, and I think respect for my mistakes and as well as, well as my goals. Um, that's a, that was a huge part of it for me. Um, it's also driven by the ambition of the student, I think. Um, most students can sort of shape the program the way they need to so that they can accomplish their goals. And that's, that is hard to find. Um, and it is absolutely that way. I had, of course, very talented instructors. I just, you know, I ended up with people who were gifted at teaching and writing and teaching writing. Um, and... Um, you know, and it's a great community. It's a really supportive community, and I think the main reason it's, a lot of writing communities are great. This one is energized. People are. When I was there, people were excited about writing. Um, you know, there was no pretension. It was just this, just absolute energy that the community created. Um, that you know, I just it was. It's very motivating to be around that. So that that was why. Um, yeah. Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess uh, one. Well, okay, well, I see two more. So, uh, two final questions. Yes? Yeah. I'm just curious yeah. how you feel like your writing process is going to go now that you're no longer Yeah, I think that's a great question, too. Um, I was a little worried about that, but then I spent about a year rewriting this book. And during that time, I had a tiny little infant who never slept. And so, and it, it was great. I loved it. It was actually, um, I think I'm more efficient with my time mm. because I have no choice but to be more efficient with it. Um, and I value it a lot more because I don't often find that spare time or that creative time. Um, so, man, when I do, do I want to be using it well? Um, you know, and there's nothing more motivating than being around other people and having this book and, and wanting to be a part of the, continue to be a part of the community. And and kind of like I said, I mean, the whole point for me is this is how I enter the world. You know, I, um, this is how I uh, process my own personal experiences. This is how I feel like I'm connected to humanity through writing stories, through reading stories. And so it's what I want, want to do. I'm hoping that's enough motivation to actually get my ass in the chair and write the words. Yeah. Yeah. Who particularly at Riverside uh, did you find which people? Well, I can tell you who I worked with. Um, I worked with Mark Haskell Smith and Todd Goldberg in fiction. Um, both were extraordinary teachers, and I worked with David Ulin um, writing nonfiction and Matthew Zapruder writing poetry. I did a very brief, very unsuccessful stint in poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but but um, but the other faculty are all great. Um, and we go to come together for ten days, um, which is a really special, really extraordinary time where you get to you get to sit with these writers and have meal after meal and talk to them and learn from them. And oh, so it's um, a non It's a it's a low right. It's non residency, <coughs> so you're at home. And that's the other thing I wanted. The reason I did low residency is because I wanted that um, the one on one relationship and to be in my house churning out pages. Um, you know, sort of. I have to learn to do it on my own. And it is, it's like sort of like that, but with all this structure and help for a while until you get sent off. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Oh, okay. All right, Dara. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me about the title of the book? Because I have to oh. when people hear the title, uh-huh. they're like, what? They're and deeply offended. the book very well. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, sort of how that came about. Yes, sure, yes. Um, I can. The the book had a series of bad titles mm-hmm. that I'm unwilling to say into a microphone that's being recorded because they were terrible. Uh, um, yeah, they were just were not. They were they didn't fit the book. Really, I shouldn't say they were terrible. They just didn't fit the book. Um, and so we knew we wanted a new title right in the beginning. 
and we were emailing back and forth a lot about it, Chris and Olivia and I, um, who edited it, Chris and Olivia who edited it, and um, I think we honed in on the fine art phrase, and we knew we wanted the fine art of something, and to sort of, for it to sound right, and to capture the art school idea, but also the, the failing, or the falling or something um, we couldn't quite get it and it wasn't quite right and I think I emailed them and said as a joke ha 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 the fine art of fucking up wish we could say that next idea and Chris was the one who was like that's what we're going to call it um, and he championed it and you know believed that it's, like you said suited the book it, it just that's what it's about mm-hmm. um, and so they've been behind it all the way and and there was at AWP two weeks ago with the U and the C start out. Yes. Yeah. Every now and then it's start out. Yeah. I've been told I can't say it when I'm on the radio. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. yeah, well, thanks again for coming. And please come up and get your book signed. Just purchase it first. And, and, and any closing <laughs> remarks from uh, David? Uh, no, just thank you guys for coming. Yeah, thank you yeah. for coming. Uh, can we have another warm round of applause for Jay Ryan and Kate? You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.